death. It's the most inevitable part of life. Some might say it's the only guarantee, but it's also a topic that many people shy away from because it makes us feel uncomfortable, scared or upset. It's often swept under the rug, not acknowledged or talked about until, of course, we come face to face with it ourselves. We hope to end this taboo through a series of interviews with many different people from all over Western Australia. We talk to ordinary people about their views on the grief, loss, love and celebration that is death and dying. This is a conversation on death. Can I just start by asking um, both of you to introduce yourselves and why you're here today? Leon, if I can start with you. Yeah, I'm Leon Rui. I'm the founder of Hacker for Life. I've been invited along today to share my story around death and particularly suicide. And Adrian Momba, and I'm I'm actually a volunteer with Lifeline WA, so involved with the phone call service where people are, are phoning up when they're in some kind of crisis. So very much touches on suicide and you know other crises that people have. Adrian, can I ask why you? Volunteered for Lifeline. Yeah, well, I, I, I actually, I, I probably got to go a long way back for that one. I, um, I grew up in a household where my mother was treated for bipolar, and it was quite a sort of, obviously a hard and difficult period. But I felt that I could cope with it as a child, and it was all, it was all really that I knew. And uh, I felt when I went into a, a retail banking career that when I got the chance, I would actually get into mental health type work, hopefully charity work. Um, So when the opportunity came about seven years ago, I started volunteering for a couple of organisations. One was actually the Mental Illness Fellowship and the other was was Lifeline. And I guess that's the more relevant one for what we're talking about today. So um, just went along the information day, sounded good, did the training, great training. And I've been there ever since, so mainly, mainly on the phones, volunteering and do also some work for the, with a bit of coaching and training of others. Oh, I don't know. I, I just think it's naturally, naturally part of me that I've, I've always wanted to help others and that's, a, that's an extension of it. Leon, part of your job, I suppose, with Hucker for Life, which is the organisation that you've created because you saw a need, is very much about, you know, being able to kind of be there for other people when they really need that. So so tell me a little bit about your backstory and how you came to be where you are now. Yeah, my story um, for me uh, involved like growing up, um, sexual abuse and physical abuse and um, traversing through life and making a whole lot of mistakes um, in relationships and not showing up the way that I wanted to in life um, as, a, as a husband and as a partner and even at times as a father as well. I'm a father of four children and, and a grandson now too. Um, and just journeying through life where there was a whole lot of backstory for myself and my internal conversation to myself about myself every day was that I wasn't good enough. I was a piece of shit. I just, I wasn't worthy. And, and that was just something I just, I could not turn it off. I just had no idea how to turn it off. So I'd literally just exist through life each and every day with that just as a constant. I wouldn't, people wouldn't see it because it's the internal conversation. But it just really um, had me in life play out and make decisions and choices that would just feed that as well. 
to prove that I was a failure, to prove that I'm not a good partner or a human being or a friend. And um, I come to a place in my life about six years ago was probably the biggest um, turnaround for me. I did a self-development course and in that course it just totally transformed the way that I saw myself. I'd never, um, I'd never been able to dismantle and unlock and break down uh, my mind and how it all was put together and how we come about thinking the way that we think and what I saw there was that I'd actually made up a whole lot of the stories that I would walk through life believing. All of a sudden I realised, hey, that's not actually the case. I, I can make up another story. And so what I did was, um, hey, from that day I, I changed the narrative about who I was. I set out on a course um, in life of restoring my integrity with people where I had to um, and being accountable. Integrity was probably something that I would speak about but wasn't really powerfully connected to and certainly was not a man of integrity um, when I wanted to be or to even know myself as that and someone that uh, was able to keep their word. So I just set out on that course of, of being that man and realising in that moment that I've been connected to my passion, which is men. Um, again, I, I've got a real heart for men. I think that there's a story about men that's untold and so many men struggle in life to be able to express themselves and open up. Um, and that was based upon also with my breakdown of my marriage and being arrested and going through, you know, um, having a restraining order and removed from my house unexpectedly and then being in a men's refuge and going through the courts and just, the, you know, the turmoil of that sort of experience in life. And when I was in a men's refuge, actually, I saw a whole lot of men that come through there that were, um, some of them were come out of prison, quite tough men. One of them in particular, he was a standover man for the bikies and that he is, he is as tough as they come, um, like super tough. He's not a man that you'd mess with. But what I saw in that house, we got really connected. Um, we actually saved his life. He, he tried to take his life and we were able to, on a phone call, I met him through a phone call when he had a gun in his mouth and um, you know, he talked about Adrian with Lifeline and that, that's why I'm actually an ambassador for Lifeline as well too and I'm, it's so important the work that they do. What I saw though was that they just didn't have this ability to be able to talk and express themselves and I really grew my heart and my passion for them and so when I was on this self-development course and discovering, hey, what are my passions? It was men, you know, it's like, and we're losing so many men. I've been suicidal myself so many times. Um, just overwhelmed and couldn't cope. And so I just hit my heart on on wanting to be this man that makes a difference and set an example to others to share my story. While you were speaking, I was thinking about, you know, sort of that person on the other end of the line. And I just wanted to check in with you, Adrian, and just find out whether is that the kind of experience which is relatively common for uh, people who are manning the, uh, the, the lines? Well, yeah, I mean, the... We can take any kind of call, so you just don't know what you're going to get on the phone. But clearly there's a lot of men out there who that maybe haven't spoken ever and asked for help before. And they could be in that situation where they're ready to take their life. What is it, you think, that, you know, triggers people at that point, even though they're kind of saying, I want to take my life, I'm going to die, this is what I want. But they do pick that phone up. So what is that? Is that an instinct for life? Yeah, maybe it is. I, I like to think it is. Just that one little glimmer of hope. Or sometimes it's 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 fear. Fear of what they might be about to do. Um, fear that maybe they haven't tried everything. And 
it's not it's not instant. It's not that they suddenly change during the phone call from wanting to kill themselves to suddenly wanting to save themselves. And 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 what's your role then at the end of the phone line? Is it about as Leon talks so graphically about? saying to them, hang on, mm. there's help around the corner. Mm. We can get you that help. What is it? Well, we, we really approach it from a, a different direction. It's really about listening to them and trying to get the person on the line actually talking about what's happening, what's their experience. And sometimes within the first few minutes of a call, you, you've, you hear a change in their voice where that, there's just a, a hint that that desperation is is disappearing, or not disappearing, but but changing. So it's about it's about them feeling that actually someone is listening and someone does care. It could be that in their life they've never experienced that before, or they just can't talk to people. They may have got to the the point with relatives or friends that they won't talk to them. They're fed up with it. So we're at, we're at a sort of safe place where they can actually talk and we can explore um, what is happening for them. And sometimes sometimes it's just that that is enough to get them to to change the way they're thinking. So do you think that that distant helps, you know, that you are just a disembodied voice? You you don't have, you know, an identity as such apart from the fact that Mm. you are there to help. And that allows people perhaps to be able to be a bit more honest. Mm, yeah, it can help, and it's a completely confidential service. Uh, it could be that they're even seeing counsellors or psychiatrists or whatever it happens to be, and that they don't feel able, they don't feel maybe always that that's working, and they feel able to express that to us. And, and do callers, do you have callers who call back on more than one occasion? Yeah, there are actually a lot of regular callers, and... Um, Quite different types of caller we get, but there would be a, I'm not sure cohort's quite the right word, but there would be a group of people who use us to help with the, the loneliness in their life. And we may be one of the few services which is actually helping them to to keep living, to keep living independently. The last couple of years, especially with uh, the pandemic worldwide uh, and, and many people, even in relatively safe WA, have had to deal with the consequences of losing family overseas or even in another state and they haven't been able to go and see them. Do you think, Adrian, that that, uh, the pressure that that has put on individuals um, in our society is going to be something that is going to be reflected in the phone calls that you get over the next two and a couple of years? Well, certainly the number of phone calls that we're getting has gone up. I mean, a lot of people in isolation or they're, they're cut, off, cut off from the loved ones or away from them, like you say, could be overseas, different states. So, yeah, there's a lot more, I would say there's a lot more loneliness out there and there's a lot more of people not imagining that there are places they can go to seek help. I guess, I guess another thing that may not have helped over the years is that, and we talk about cultural and societal trends and so on, is maybe the part breakdown of the family unit where we're all in our own little little boxes. We've got older couples living on their own or, or singly. 
maybe that concept of, of being in the same town or, or locality with your family isn't the same as it was. So there are other ways, aren't there, that, that people maybe need to be supported and to realise that there are other places they can go. But yes, certainly, certainly COVID pandemic is, is, has been a very big effect. And also aspects on there like being told what to do and where to go. And it's changed everybody's lives and it's, it's unsettled a lot of people. I've noticed a lot of fatigue on the different sites and people are getting tired with the COVID restrictions and, and all of those demands, let alone their life demands, let alone their work demands, let alone their family demands, their personal stuff that they're dealing with. And, and again, like I say, when the society is constructed in a particular way where we must look like we've got it together all the time, every time, um, people are being overwhelmed and they're just caving in. So there's a lot more people that are in danger and that'll call Lifeline. Like Lifeline have got record phone calls. They're, I mean, they're taking a phone call less than every 30 seconds now, I believe, and it's phenomenal. And that's just going to continue and continue. Um, and I think it'll continue regardless of whether we've got COVID now because there's, a, as Adrian was saying, a cohort, if we use that description, that realise that there's a service and people available to talk to. So the positive out of it, though, is that we've got a whole lot more people that are talking, which is something that we should really celebrate as well too, that those are people that traditionally probably wouldn't have talked, but they get to a point where I've got to talk and um, and there's many people that are on the edge of death that actually they cry for help or their ability to reach out to Lifeline and to other services is actually a, a communication that's saying, I don't want to die. You talked a little bit just earlier about why it's so important to be able to connect that loneliness that perhaps men feel. How does Haka help that? The whole construct of Haka and the way that we actually perform haka and share haka and do haka is, you know, that explosive energetic release of expression. And every single time that I fully express myself through haka, that's, I feel so good afterwards. It was interesting. I went to America a couple of years ago and uh, we taught a whole lot of men the haka over there in America. And one of the things that struck me is that they all thanked us and we met the indigenous people there in Southern California. And they said, thank you for bringing your medicine to our land. And they actually saw that haka was a medicine. And I'd never fully looked at it like that. I had created haka for life and I knew that it was a haka when you do that, it's to save life and I'm expressing ourselves powerfully. But they said that it's a medicine and they're right. And that's what I've seen you know, in the creation of haka for life and having men and women and children be able to connect to that expression of communication. It's just another form of communication that we have as human beings. Um, it is so powerfully expressive and so healing as well, it is like a medicine for people. Do you think as a society we are able to deal with suicide, the build-up to suicide, suicide itself, and the fallout from uh, a family member or a loved one who does commit suicide? Do you think as a society we are able to deal with that well? Are we geared up? I guess it's all degrees, isn't it? It's a balance. There are a lot of great services which which to assist, and I mean in WA, for example, there's services which which are are excellent at dealing with the 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 stuff that happens after for people who are left behind. Um, but we can never quite do enough, can we? So it's, we're always striving to do more. Um, I mean, one person in WA a day is is killing themselves, which is a shocking statistic, really. 
um, sometimes gets overlooked when we think about road death and stuff like that. It's considerably more. Um, and there is so much more we can do to prevent it, to deal with it. Um, obviously, that's what um, health services try to do, isn't it? I love Leon using the word medicine for hacker because there's so much medicine out there which isn't necessarily in the health sphere. I was thinking about a choir that I sing in, and that's an expression, isn't it? Just to be able to, to sing as loud as you like and no one to tell you to stop. But it, it could be anything that comes of it. Yeah. How did Haka for Life, which is something that you really you know, are passionate about, Leon, how did that come about? Yeah, part of my journey and when I'd done the initial self-development course and was discovering things about myself, and I had all of these ideas, how can I sort of contribute to men um, and, and disappear these rates of suicide, make an impact to men. Um, and I've got a very creative mind and one of the things that I love is Anzac Day. It's the most special day being in New Zealand, living in Australia. Um, both my great-grandfathers fought in World War One, so, so I'm immensely proud and get emotional even talking about it. So I think it's um, – and it's, a, it's an opportunity for me as a New Zealander and as a Māori to express my thanks for living in Australia because I've lived most of my life here in Australia. I thought, wow, um, I could do the haka there um, on Anzac Day um, to express myself. And while I was doing this course, I thought, actually, um, we're in a we're in a war again. I mean, we're we're not in a in a war as such like they were in World War One and in the Boer War and World War Two and other conflicts that they've had. But there's a war being waged on the on the minds of men where we're we're losing our men like many did in those times where we lost a lot of the male population due to war. It's another war. It's the war of the mind. And I thought, I can use um, a haka up at Kings Park on Anzac Day to not only share my expression of thanks and acknowledgement for those that have fallen, but as an opportunity for those that are still in the war of the mind to be able to come there and express themselves. And so I came up with that idea. But I named the haka Anzac Day Haka for Life. But what happened was it just went viral on the internet, took off, and that's and the haka for life has continued to you know, to grow from that moment and that time um, where it went viral in 2017 and 2018, I created the world's first um, haka and corroboree. Corroboree is the Aboriginal dance, and that was done up at Kings Park again in 2018. That's uh, the first, first of any service that Anzac Day has had a haka and a corroboree at it. Then we did it in 2019. 2020, uh, we're so grateful to have ABC allowed us to do it online with them. Um, then 2021, I went over to Sydney. I was invited over there to put together the first Hucker and Corroboree at the Coloured Diggers service in Redfern. And then this year for Anzac Day, I've created the first um, Indigenous Anzac Day service at the Supreme Court Gardens, which I'm putting together right now. In modern society, we're so busy living younger, longer, you know, stronger, that we can kind of push the inevitability of death kind of one side and death then just becomes something that happens with professionals you know in an environment which isn't home which isn't maybe surrounded by family do you think we've lost our way adrian i don't know whether we've lost our way <laughs> but de death has is something that has to be talked about isn't it and on the phone we're prepared to, to talk about that and go into, into real dark places if necessary. 
and some people do do respond to that it's something that that is needed um it, it's inevitable isn't it we're all going to die um but it it it's it's when and if and how but the more i suppose that we can bring it out into into discussion and and remove that taboo maybe the better leon you've got four children is is death something that you you're able to talk about easily with them uh, yeah yes i've got no issues in talking about death with my children i even remind them they're fortunate enough to have my mum and dad that quite often come over home and my dad's a builder and he's been in my shed actually creating lots and lots of dust. And my kids the other day were saying, Poppy's put dust everywhere in the shed, you know. I said, you want to be grateful that you have the opportunity for your grandfather to be here creating dust. One day they're not going to be here, you know. And they said, oh, there goes dad again saying all of this stuff. But they're in their early 20s, my two oldest and my two youngest are in their late teens and they don't know and comprehend these experiences of death and what life has got to come and teach them. In our um, Indigenous culture and Māori culture, we're brought up around death. So um, as much as I don't like it, in the sense that it's final, in the physical realm, it's final, they move on. Um, we've been around through our cultural protocols and that we have our loved ones when they pass away, we have them in the house with us. So that's not something that's not um, uncomfortable for me or anything like that. And I'm always up for talking about it. My... Children, actually, they. my daughter rang me the other morning. She, they'd lost a friend to suicide uh, just a couple of days ago, and she just called to check in and say, Dad, this boy here has, has taken his life, and um, I just want you to know that Isaac, my youngest son, um, was close to him, and you might want to check in with him. And So we had a conversation, are you okay? How are you feeling? You're, we're good. Um, you know, we're processing things. They know the work that I do, and so, you know, I'm not afraid to have these conversations. Um, I, I think in relation to sort of the question about what you're asking, Adrian, have we, has society lost our way? I, I think we have in a sense that we steer away from conversations that are so vitally important today. Our, our society is constructed so much from a commercial sense and a marketing sense that they're conditioning human beings to look a particular way and that we should always look happy, we should always have it together, especially in Australia or in this Western world. We must be a particular way. And what I can see is that it's overloading the minds of human beings and they can't they can't sustain it. We do have to move the focus and talk about things like death because it doesn't fit the narrative about wanting to keep everybody happy. You know, the, the, the construct of these companies in the world and the, the, the big business and that is to sell products, to sell things. You don't sell sadness and death. A lot of people won't even buy life insurance because that means that I'm going to die. So, Do you think that suicide is trauma-driven? A lot of it is deep-seated and been there for, for years. The volunteers on the phones at Lifeline, a lot of them have some kind of lived experience and some of them have been suicidal in the past. Um, some of them are su survivors. And it it really does indicate that how it is possible to turn your life around and then, I mean, you've, you've commented yourself on that, Leon. Um, so all, all, rank, all types of person, all different bits of life, all different jobs, stages of life, young, old, what have you, but mental illness, but there's so much that, that is there that is experienced in there and we're, we're really try on the phone to have unconditional positive regard for that caller. It's something we talk about a lot. 
where they can talk about anything and it may be inappropriate even some of it, but they've just got, they can let stuff out, let stuff off their chest. And just the talking the, and then exploring what maybe they can do, what, what resources they might have and what ideas they might have and encouraging them. And I guess that's what it's all about. So is part of that encouragement, Adrian, to say to them, phone back any time, phone back, and there will always be someone here to listen? Yeah, I mean, I think it's something that we, we probably are not telling them that they must do that. But I, that's definitely an offer. The, the offer is there. They can call back any time, as many times as they want. It, more it's about what would they do if those feelings get to this point again? We, we could ask that question. And often they will say, we'll phone you back. And it, that's certainly really encouraging to us too, to know that, that we're, a, we're a service that will keep them out of that darkest of places at one point. Do you think our social leaders, our, our governments, our people in power, our, you know, sort of people who make grant-making decisions about what project to fund and what not project to fund, do you think that those people are responsible enough or open enough to understanding that actually support is key? Or prevention rather than cure, yeah. yeah I think they've taken a huge clinical approach to sort of uh, dealing with suicide and mental illness and that traditionally for governments and, and a lot of that is the criteria driven. As long as organisations are ticking boxes that set out a particular criteria and a lot of those uh, organisations ensure that they do that, um, they're finding that it's not necessarily the most effective approach because people are still dying at record numbers. And I, I think too, like they've had, uh, uh, they're seeing the effectiveness of organisations like Hucka for Life and our approach to using Indigenous dance and, and different ways of healing people, that there are different approaches that they're becoming more and more open to. But I'd like to see that um, expanded even more and, and uh, made even quicker and reviewed as well to the true effectiveness of um, some of those outcomes for grant, you know, grants being funded. It makes me think too that uh, I'm, I'm not working on the project, but there's something you might have heard of called One Three Yarn. It's basically, well, what we're trying to do is to get a, a phone service actually um, organised by Indigenous Aboriginal people so that they can actually phone in on that line and get somebody that is, is culturally more aware of what they might be going through. Do we have enough people from culturally diverse backgrounds who are in those roles, in those roles at Lifeline, in those roles with some of the organisations that you work with, and, you know, um, there's a saying that you are what you see. And so if you don't see those people there, why would I go to a psychologist who I think will never understand my baggage because I come from, you know, a totally different place to that other person? I think the short answer is probably no, unfortunately. But we're always trying to encourage and find out how can we actually encourage more diverse categories to actually apply, to come and join. So earlier, Adrian, you talked about how society has in some ways kind of like broken down. We're a lot more atomised. Uh, you know, family structure has changed significantly from what it might have been 100 years ago. Um, how important do you think the social media community is 
in creating what we might have lost, you know, through the physicality of relationships. Uh, so by that, I mean kind of like support groups that are online, for example, that may actually reach, a, you know, hundreds, thousands, if not thousands of, uh, of people. I mean, I suppose I'm thinking a lot from a lifeline angle just because of my involvement. But, yeah, a lot of people won't phone. So it could be that it's text or it could be that it's chat, online chat. So, again, we do cater for that. It's available. And I think that's that's a case of all of us who are trying to support need to branch out. We need to think about, yeah, how is it that other people communicate? It has its place, you're right, but, I mean, for me, if we didn't have social media with Hucker for Life, it wouldn't have got out mm. there, you know, for me. And I, I use it in a particular way that we that we do promote things in a positive sense. And Well, that's another thing that's noticeable is that some people have real difficulty communicating. They might phone up and, and almost the, the phone line will go quiet. So I, I guess our volunteers have a lot of skill at drawing out trying to draw out what they're really feeling and trying to draw out a conversation, get that going. Yeah, and I, I love that example, Adrian, because essentially that's what we're trying to get those people to do is to communicate. And, and the shirt that you're wearing today, Leon, says it's okay not to be okay. Is that the message that you want to to, to end with perhaps? Yeah, it is the message, yeah. It's, it is okay not to be okay. Not every day is a happy day and not every day is a sad day. But I've learned in life that when life is good, to enjoy it. And there'll be other times when life is not what we want it to be. But it doesn't mean that it's going to remain that way. I've seen it in my own life, um, that it doesn't stay rainy all the time. It might be a season where we go through and things are just overwhelming and tough and it's important to reach out to support services. The, it's important for yourself to express yourself around people that you trust and that allow you to be able to share exactly how you're feeling. Um, these are the things that will keep us alive. Um, and then to realise that, as I did, that there's greater days that are coming. You know, there's, there's, there's experiences in life ahead of you that you cannot see now. It's an impossibility that I saw a conversation like this happening in my life. I would observe that it happens to everybody else but not me, even though I wanted to do it. So there's still lots in life. Uh, lots in life for us that is unseen that is yet to come for each and every person. Thanks for listening. This interview was recorded on the lands of the Wajak Noongar people and we pay our respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. This oral history collection was commissioned by the State Library of Western Australia and produced by Louisa Mitchell from the Centre for Stories. Narration by Louisa Mitchell. Editing by Mason Velios. And special thanks to executive producer and interviewer Rita Alfred Cigar.